Welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global and you can find the schedule and all of our events for the week. Now, our first hour is typically questions that your questions that we answer on media and virtual events. The second hour is something that we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be talking about goal setting, the resources, strategies, and systems to help you create an actionable plan. And you know what? It's time for us to get to our questions. Go ahead, Ken. Hello, Liberty. Our first question comes from Brian Shand in Sydney, Australia. If you were beginning your career in broadcasting now, what skills would you invest your time and money in learning? Alex? Yeah, I think, you know, for the most part, I I do get some training if if you want to do broadcasting. I mean, specifically, uh, you know, I think that there is some training that can be done (laughs) as far as how to use your voice and asking people about what that actually looks like. Or if you're doing that kind of work, um, you know, working with others, I think is the most important thing. Uh, Finding a way that you can take a low-level job that gets you surrounded by people who know more than you is the most important part of all progress. Uh, It's not a matter of, you know, you can take some classes if you want. I literally walked into a radio station and said, I will um, sweep the floors for free if you just let me stay. (laughs) I really like the music. And, uh, and um, and, you know, I was uh, program director or assistant program director in two years, you know, and so... Uh, so the, the main thing is, is that you, but what, what, what every day I learn something from the DJs, from the program director, from the music director, from the ad folks, from everything else. And you just want to absorb, um, what that looks like. I don't think you need investing your time is being busy. Do not spend the time just sitting around watching YouTube videos and Googling ideas and so on and so forth. Find a way to get on teams, find a way to, to, to get on things that you can actually be doing something with other people that know more than you. Is probably the most useful part of your time. And then as far as investment, the tools that you need to do that. You know, I spent my money, what little money I had on computers back in the 80s and the early 90s. And that, that did me pretty well. She muted, Liberty. I think she means me, but I'll go ahead. Um, the Columbia School of Broadcasting is lo- no longer with us, not affiliated with CBS. Uh, so there was no real school. There were some places you could go. And broadcasting is very close to being a skill, like being a plumber or uh, a woodworking person or some specialized task. Um, you don't have to go to college to become a broadcaster. And as Alex was uh, saying, uh, interning is your best bet. Um, I would take four years of working in a radio station doing any job, including sweeping the floors, uh, over four years of uh, broadcasting college, so to speak. There's no real specialty other than journalism and some of those special things. Or if you're going to be an engineer, maybe electrical engineering. But uh, for the most part, you need to get in with somebody that's going to let you come in and learn the ropes. And uh, you can go through that whole process. I did it. It uh, It was a pleasure. I would have paid them to work there running tapes on Sunday mornings and doing things and odd jobs. And then I eventually ended up doing afternoon drives. So uh, uh, it's, it's, it's more who you know and who you can get to know. And like you say, surround yourself with people that know what they're talking about. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, the three that I would focus on, and probably in this order, first, performance. And I say performance. You can go to acting school. You, anything where you uh, at some point have to be on 
and do whatever it is you're going to do. Because for all of us who have been in radio or on television or whatever, there comes that moment where it's three, two, one, and you have to go. And that is all about performance. So I would take acting lessons or I would take radio coaching or I would do, I would find some sort of way to practice performance. That's number one, because that's really the skill you have. Number two uh, and number three, Marketing is one of them, but I think even more important than marketing these days is I do some serious studying on branding because most successful people these days in the performance art have to pay attention to their brand. And there are actually specific skills about branding. You know, what do you let go out in the market? How do you position yourself for the market and the rest of that? And then marketing is the big wide area behind that, which has to do with how do I make myself known so that people hire me? And, you know, without those three things, I think you're starting behind the pack at the way that it's working now. Go ahead, Courtney. And remember, there's a lot of jobs at uh, in broadcasting and radio and television that are not in front of the camera, in front of the microphone. There's uh, production managers. There's people who cut cut spots, uh, record the other voices. You know, you can get that job. Once you get your foot in the door there, then you might start doing some promos of your own, develop your voice if you look are you looking to be uh, on the air, um, work on your elocution, make sure you can read correctly. People who are dyslexic, see, I can't even say dyslexic. Uh, People who are dyslexic uh, can have a problem because a lot of times you have to cold read news or spots on the air. So work on that. Uh, There are treatments for that if you happen to have that uh, affliction. Um, And deliver a a clean, learn how to uh, record yourself and listen to yourself back and see what you sound like, because a lot of people don't know what necessarily what they sound like unless they do a sound check or, or record themselves. So these days, that's pretty easy to do. And Tony. Yeah, I think this is an exciting time. I want to say ditto to everything that has already been said. But I also want to encourage those people who are at the beginning of their careers to consider there's TikTok, there's YouTube. There are systems like... Uh, Memo Live and Ecamm, and um, it's everyone can have their own studio, their own broadcasting network in their home with the right equipment. And don't be afraid to take the risk. Yeah, Tony, I'm going to jump on both what you just said about what building uh, on your own and doing doing your work there, but then also what Bill had shared with regards to the branding aspect of it. To a degree in broadcast, especially more so if you were on air talent, that you would develop, you know, your persona and your image being really important. But even for those that are behind the scenes, this is where I would say, you know, whether it be writing a blog and sharing, you know, your journey as you are learning, like those things will help you with one of the things that I don't know if it was already said, but networking and those relationships and really building those and like really working at those as well as the technical skills are extremely important. But as you're able to help and volunteer those things will actually continue to open doors for you uh, along the journey. Mitchell? Yeah, I agree with you, Liberty. Uh, that's a very good point because when I came back on the radio after a semi-retirement, um, they wanted me to do social media, and I had no idea what it was or how to deal with it. But, the, you know, the, it's, I had, had to learn it from scratch, you know, and that's telling somebody that's been in broadcasting for 40-some years 
hey, you got a skill you're missing. So that's a good point. Next question. Next question comes from Nigel Dassault in Austin in the United States. He says, my Blackmagic 6K Pro went pink this morning, needed to turn it off and back on again. Has anyone seen this before? That's a new color. I've heard green. Nigel, do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, we were getting ready for the show and suddenly um, everything went pink and uh, I disappeared and I naturally assumed it was the uh, switcher. So I rebooted the switcher and I was still pink. And then I looked on the back of the camera and it was bright pink. And if you see Courtney, it was the color of Courtney's background. And uh, uh, I just never seen it before. I wanted to know if it was something I had done or just a moment of fun. Jason? I had a similar issue with a 6K and um, and DVE Store was good enough to simply switch it out. It was, it was basically brand new. Um, my guess is you should contact Blackmagic. Uh, if you can't reset the camera, this is a warranty issue. And my guess is it's quietly a known issue. Mm, Courtney. Uh, and the question is, was it a solid pink with no image in it? Or was the image actually all uh, pink in color? Uh, if it was a solid pink color, it's usually an indication, just like green, is that um, it's lost sync. It's lost its uh, horizontal or vertical sync, and it switches to a solid color usually. Um, but I've never seen it do pink. That that That's interesting, or it could be a bad cable. So reseat the cables, that's what I do. And in the chat, Kenneth Harrison says, last time something like that happened to him, I accidentally hit one of the function keys and turn it turned to false color. So that might be something to look at as well. Next question. Brian Shand from Sydney, Australia wants to know what is the most effective, I'm sorry, what is the most cost effective Zoom ISO setup? John. So uh, I have ISO light um, and then I run, um, I run, uh, What's an ISO uh, on light? The, on the PC, ISO, Zoom ISO light, the, the light version, and then OBS on a PC, and then using NDI, we suck all those feeds in, and we send it back to the M. So from the from the M1 ISO, grab those and feed those into OBS, and then OBS back into Zoom. That's the cheapest method we found. And the, the difference between the light version and the Pro? It's like $30 a month, something like that. Okay. Nigel? Yeah, so uh, I'm using Ecamm to do the same thing that John is. So it goes from Zoom ISO into Ecamm, and you can uh, use NDI to switch it to a different machine. But I'm also starting to play with the idea of multiple Apple TVs. I seem to have a box full of Apple TVs that have emerged out of nowhere, as far as I can tell. And uh, I think if I could run Sienna on those, then actually I could feed the NDI actually into my ATEM, and I'm going to see if that works and alex yeah and, and i think that you could also depend on how many participants um you know you you probably can um run even on a mac mini uh, you should be able to run two to four participants uh, with zoom iso light uh, into something like memo live or ecamm using siphon um, so you may be able to get those all working on the same computer otherwise you might want to use the base unit of a um, of the studio um, but those would all be in uh, you could definitely run the outputs in a studio via siphon to, um, you know, four outputs, to, you know, to it. But I think that you may be able to do it on a Mac mini and it's something that I hope to test soon. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida in the United States asks, is there a diagram of the current office hours control and video flow? 
Alex? We're working on it. Uh, yeah, it's in. It's right now. We're trying to do, document at the moment. We're documenting a moving, moving something that's very much moving because we're in the update stage right now. But we will be uh, uh, documenting it and also talking about it uh, once we finish the two point five change. So stay tuned for a second hour on that. Next question. Bo Cordell from Charleston, South Carolina, wants to know what are the ingredients for an effective after action after action report or RFI document. Let's start with Bill. Uh, specificity, detail. I mean, the the thing, if it's just about um, some performance or something like that, and you're critiquing that, that's one thing. But if it has anything to do with a computer flow or anything like that, over and over again, I had a friend who did this for a very large computer company. And it was that, you know, this happened when I was doing this, but it said nothing about the system, the configurations, the how they were attached to the outside world, the I.O. on the I.O. on the computer. And over and over again, he mentioned to me how hard it was to recreate a problem so that you can start to fix it unless you had specific details. When my computer was in this state with these plugins running and this happened, then somebody can recreate that and try to solve the problem. But that specificity and specific causes that your state when things happen can become very important. Alex? Yeah, for bug reports, I would absolutely agree with Bill. I can tell you as the person who's kind of, I don't know if it started off RFIs, but we, but we use them heavily, um, is that this is how we approached it. Um, we sent out documents to each person, um, and we didn't do it for every single show, but for many shows, especially ones that were going to go for a little while. We would send out a document to each person. It wasn't the same document. We didn't want them looking at other people's RFIs. We just wanted them to think about their own. We also instructed people to write down anything that bothers them, like anything that they thought was wrong, anything they thought was missing, all the way down to the cold sandwiches or the or the soup isn't quite right or or there wasn't enough M&Ms. Like, I don't care what it is. Just 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 get it out of your system by putting it in. And so part of it was a, it just made, it gave someone somewhere to put the complaints. <laughs> so they just, so they didn't sit there and sit with them. So they'd put those complaints in individually. And then typically what we would do is, um, we would get together with the different groups, so the audio group, the video group, you know, as producers, and we would go through the, a lot of those things and discuss it with them. So there'd be a series of meetings that happened after the event where we would go through different groups and, and go through those RFIs. Okay, we had this, and, and what we'd be looking for is collating RFIs that are the same. If everybody notices that this is a problem, if everybody knows this is the problem, and then we talk about, you know, how are we going to fix that in the future? And so we'd have discussions about it. Now, I will say that we did not get into a lot of documentation around it. And the main reason is, is that a lot of tools that that do this don't work because they become too cumbersome to use. So so the, the, the big thing that we tried to do is not make it something that was going to generate, someone's going to generate a big document out of it so people are taking notes. It was more about being present to the things that weren't working, talking about them and having them in our head, you know, about what that is. Now we took certain RFIs because there were certain things that that the producers would put in that weren't necessarily complaints, but things like the client likes this, the client likes this, the client likes, like this client likes coffee with two sugars and a cream, you know, like this client likes, so there'd be those things. And those things would often go into a document about the, uh, that would go into a document about the client because we'd be looking for all these little, like this client, we had, I had one client that forgot their lightning cable all the time. They always ask for a lightning cable. And I got, not only did I get to a point where I had the lightning cable, but I had it in their, in the colors of their company. <laughs> you know, like, you know, so, so, you know, you, you can tune these things, um, you know, up and then people notice that you're noticing. Um, the, the main thing is, is that 
you want to make it light because otherwise people won't do it. They won't want to go to the meeting. They won't want to do it. It's not about, and it's definitely not about digging into all these things and making it a big thing. It was just like, a, it was usually a lunch. You know, we'd order lunch, we'd sit around, we'd go through the stuff, we'd talk about it, we'd socialize what that happened, what happened there. Now we did keep that document because a lot of times we did shows year after year after year. And so the next time we saw that, after we had that discussion, it was more about us being present to what didn't work um, and coming up with some things that like, let's not, let's not do that again. Then after that, the next time we saw that document was usually when the client called to do it again the next year. We'd open that document back up again. We would, um, <laughs> and we would discuss it again because we would. What we didn't want to do is make any of the same mistakes again. Oh, right! Remember that those stairs were really <laughs> like that, that. There was a ledge on that stair that made it hard for us to get our cases over, and all those things we we would hash back up again. It's probably not the most. I mean, again, if I had more coordinators, I'd probably have someone build a report or do something, but. None of us ever read the reports anyway. So anything with a lot of text, we no one was reading anyway. So it didn't seem like it was great to work with it. And we found that it was very effective. Like we iterated very fast just by having the meetings, you know, so that was useful for us. And adding to what Alex said, the uh, the whole idea about being present. So depending on the size of the show, whether I was running the team or I was on someone else's team, that debrief immediately after or when there's a break so that you don't lose that information that people are getting. Because especially if you're working with, um, say, contractors, typically once the show ends, they're on to the next thing. So just getting as much data as possible because you can have the document, but without the data, it's not going to connect. And, and we question. haven't, oh. we have, I was going to say that we haven't been as good at doing it with post-production shows, you know, like we do that later and we don't, it's not as organized, um, but the live shows we try to do within days, you know, of it, because there's a lot of adrenaline and you lose almost all that data really fast. Right. Next question. Brian Shan, Sydney, Australia. What are the pros and cons of an NDI based workflow? Jesse? Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, many pros, uh, I don't know, a few cons or a few maybe challenges to get over. One of the big ones is for NDI is that you're using existing network infrastructure and common category cables. Um, and, you know, if it's just within a small building or something like that or within a few rooms, it's quite easy. Um, when it gets to a larger network infrastructure uh, or enterprise level, if there are certain uh, uh, hardcore firewalls or um, security issues in the actual network. You'll have to work through some of those. Uh, but once it's initialized, it should be fine. Um, other things that are nice are, like, think about a single cable that does, you know, power uh, your video signal and control. Uh, I had a client recently that had uh, a few of those Panasonic uh, PTZ cameras, and we set up a custom controller, and they had one cable you know, to plug into their cameras and it was all NDI and it talked to, uh, you know, the video signal went uh, throughout their campus and uh, onto their computers for streaming and onto Zoom. Um, so, you know, just the ability to also to, to pass that signal around to different devices and different interfaces uh, without a bunch of hardware is, is pretty nice. Uh, but, you know, uh, you have to be wise about your network and about, uh, Discovery and, and some of those uh, particular computer settings. Um, New Tech has some really good training on uh, setting up your network or dealing with issues. Um, it, it becomes a little bit harder if you're sending that signal over the web, but uh, local area network is 
quite doable and often just plug and play. So I would say don't be afraid to experiment with it a little bit. And uh, if you get stuck, there's a lot of resources in, in office hours to help you out with NDI. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, a lot of what uh, Jesse said is is totally accurate. Um, the the ability just to plug in NDI and have it work locally, it, it's a dream come true for a lot of us that have been doing this for a long time where you're having to run cables or buy hundreds of meters of cables and and uh, chop them up and and you know put ends on them so ha- using the existing infrastructure at a facility is amazing as long as it is uh, cat 5e or higher but that can also be a downside if uh, there is routing that you're unaware of or sometimes people will uh, cut cables and then put some kind of adapter in the middle and then that could be a failure point so when you're looking at NDI versus SDI, there's there's just a, a lot of simplicity that happens with SDI and HDMI. You plug it in one end and it works. And that can work the same if you're on your own network and you have full control. But there are some some cons there where if you don't have control of the switch, and so that's that's the networking switch where you actually plug it in, uh, you can create some issues with uh, MDNS and IGMP snooping and some of these things that are more advanced. Uh, like Jesse was saying, there's some great uh, tutorials on the New Tech website. Uh, so, so the con would be that uh, it can get uh, it can get dicey once you get into having multiple cameras, multiple computers. But for ease of use, I recommend anybody just try download the NDI tools, open up Studio Monitor on one computer, open up um, uh, the NDI test patterns on another, and just send send a signal, and you'll see how, how easy it can be. And then uh, when you get more advanced, start getting some of the cameras and start um, doing uh, some of the routing. That's one of the big benefits is being able to route things and share it and have it on multiple machines. Another thing is in the cloud. It's the way to go. How do we get video from one computer to the other in AWS? Uh, you create a security group and open up some ports and you can pass video not only in AWS, Google Cloud and Azure as well. So uh, there is CDI up there, which is a, another version of NDI. But yeah, there, there's a lot to learn, but uh, it's fun once you get it going. I mean, especially with, with the Netgear switches, I'd recommend anybody who's going to do this seriously get the Netgear AV line of switches, and that just cures so many problems. And Mitchell? Yeah, like Dante, uh, best to have a dedicated network to it because you can fill it up real quick and have problems if you're coexisting with other devices. But the whole idea of IP-based anything is where it's at. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer, Vieira, Florida, in the United States. Is it a good idea to run Waves WLM slash Audio Hijack on the same Mac Mini M1 as Zoom ISO? Go ahead, Jason. Okay, I, I, I have to start with it depends. Um, if you are actually just talking about the WLM meters, uh, yeah, that'll be fine, assuming you can get your routing to not get wonky. One of the reasons that that we use meters with a completely separate machine going into Zoom is that it can't be messed with. It's completely isolated. There's, you know, there's significant benefit to that. But as far as does the the M1 have the capability to do it? Absolutely. Mitchell, ditto on that. Uh, and uh, the uh, Waves WLM. It's pretty lightweight, doesn't use a lot. Uh, the auto hijack, on the other hand, might be a little bit more. But uh, I know lots of people that run them all together on the same M1 machine. Next question. David Paskin from Miami, Florida in the USA says, I know it depends, but best budget USB slant XLR mic for office hours use. Jesse. Yeah, uh, well... 
It depends probably because people like to hear different things. But, uh, you know, for uh, I think one of the things I one of the things I do consider whenever I send out a mic is what the environment is. So that usually determines if it's going to be a dynamic or a condenser microphone. That uh, simple dynamic, the AT2005 uh, has Audio-Technica, has USB and XLR on it. I think it's under 60 bucks or something like that. And uh, it's not a combo, but there's a little F-Fine USB microphone that I believe is less than 50 or so. Um, that one's nice. As it's got a little gain knob on the front so you can say, hey, you can turn yourself up to 12 o'clock or whatever. So it's really easy to uh, coach the remote end folks, and they're inexpensive as well. F-F-I-N-E. Done. Jesse nailed it. The AR combo, the USB slash XLR are great deals. It's around the $80 range. They make two or three different ones, the 2000 series. Courtney. Yep. I was going to say the same thing. The ATR 2100 is the more expensive of the two, uh, 2100X USB. It's They're both dynamic mics. And I don't, this is the other one, the 2005 USB, which is going for about 63 bucks. And the Audio Technica ATR twenty one hundred X, they're both combo USB and uh, XLR, and they have headphone outputs on the bottom, I believe, and even an adjustment over the level of the headphone output. But it does not adjust the microphone level. An important thing to remember: I don't think you'll find any condenser, large diaphragm condensers that are both USB and analog out because of the forty eight volt requirement for the condenser and the five volt requirement for the USB. They would be clashing there. Uh, so you'll probably have to deal with a dynamic mic, and since you have a dynamic mic, you're going to have to go into something that has enough gain, a mixer that has enough gain to get it up uh, to a level that's usable online, because it usually requires about 65 or so dB of gain. Bill? I'm going to be cantankerous. I don't think it matters. And let me explain why. Uh, first of all, low-end mics have gotten much better than they used to be. Used to be if you had a mic under a couple hundred dollars, it was pretty lousy. With the new chipsets they have, these USB mics and other mics under 100 bucks can be decent. Uh, the other thing is just it's still always going to be about performance. I, you know, my early part of my career is a voice talent. I'm, uh, they stood me in front of 50 different mics over the course of the first 10 years, and they all worked. They all did fine. The human voice is not that complicated to record. Are there differences? Yes. But the difference is the delta between Mike A and Mike B in front of me doing a performance is almost unnoticeable. Why? Because I've spent a long time doing this. I have a trained voice and all the rest. I know how to read copy and I know how to interpret copy. The mic is not the key there. Yes, as you get better, you will want better and better microphones because it does matter in terms of self-noise and some of the things we've talked about. But if you are sitting there worried that you can't do a job because you don't have exactly the right mic, it's the wrong thought process. Do the job, do the work, learn. Don't worry about what's sitting in front of you. That's not the key. And Mitchell? Sure, MV7. And until Neumann comes out with a USB connection, I'll go for a Neumann when that happens. And Alex? Yeah, I mean, we we went through a lot of mics, um, and the, to Bill's point, it doesn't matter to some degree, but it does it does matter. <laughs> it definitely makes a difference. So here are the things that we worry about. Uh, um, it, it depends on where you're sending it and who has it. If you're doing it in a booth, you can do a lot of things, but if you're doing it in someone's house, uh, you need something with a lot of off-axis rejection. So condenser mics, large diaphragms, and so on and so forth are not usually great because they'll pick up everything in the room. You also want to look at its ability to... 
um, you know, amplify correctly. So can it get loud enough? So for instance, we we got the the one from Germany that I can't think of the name of right now that has a USB. It's only $85, but it doesn't, it's not loud enough and there's no way to get it there. So, so, um, so that becomes a problem. So we, uh, I mean, a lot of folks watched me test a lot of mics and we still came back to the MV7. It's not the cheapest mic. One thing that I am, you know, it's, and it depends on, again, if you have a controlled environment and it's for you and you're going to use it, then there's a lot of options. If you're going to send it to somebody, um, then just think about, you know, the off-axis rejection, how uh, forgiving, also how forgiving it is. And we found that the MV7, well, a little bit more expensive than the rest of them so far has been the best one under $300. Next question. Kyle Heyman from Chicago says, I have a mistake to fix. I shot one of three 6K cameras in off-speed frame rate, and he indicates 33 over 29.97. How does one retime the clip so the audio and video get in sync and match the other clips at 29.97? Alex? Uh, you're going to take it into your whatever you're using for compression, whether it's media encoder or compressor, and have it go in and force it to 29.97. It'll start. Th it'll throw away uh, three frames per second. <laughs> so it will, and so you might see. You know, you'll you'll you might notice that um, as you go through it. I mean, we're pretty open. Most people are pretty rugged about how they see things because they see 23.98 going to 30 all the time. Um, so, and that's making up frames. And so, so those things are, those things happen. Um, but, uh, but there's not really any other good way to go from a non integer to another non integer. You're not going to, with one, one frame every 10 frames, it's, it's, there's not any good way to, um, put that together other than just letting it throw those away, but you just throw it into compressor or media encoder and, uh, let them just throw the frames away. And when it comes back out the other end, it should be, if, it, if you set it to 2997, it, it should line up with the audio. And Mitchell. Alex nailed it. That's exactly what I would do. And I would also, while I'm doing it, uh, uh, make sure it's a mezzanine Kodak like ProRes because it's easier to edit. So if you're going to go to that trouble, might as well make it a ProRes Kodak at the same time. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, what are the advantages of Siphon versus local NDI for transporting video streams between applications on Mac OS? Nigel? Yeah, so I don't have an answer, but I wanted to pre preface the, the answer. I'm sure Alex is going to give us a minute. Can you spend just a minute on what Siphon is as well? Because I think we talk a lot about NDI, and I can go to NewTek and download the NDI software. I don't know what the Siphon software is. Is it a separate piece of software? Is it in the, the base OS? And that's the preface to the answer. Go ahead, Alex. I don't know if I'm the right person to answer <laughs> that. So, so you know, like I think, that, you know, so the... Um, uh, but what I will say is that the way Siphon works, so Siphon is a, I believe, an open source, it, it, but it basically makes available um, the, you know, and, and I actually don't know enough about it to do to, to to answer that well. We'll get somebody else on that does this a lot. The, um, but what Siphon does that's different than NDI, NDI has to take that frame, compress it, send it, decompress it, and put it out. Siphon hands the frame that it's been that it's that's been created to the other application. So there's not a compression and recompression. And there's two things there: the quality will be higher, and number two, the um, the latency will be lower. So and number three, the CPU overhead will be lower than NDI. So uh, if you're on a Mac, I don't think that there is any reason to use anything other than siphon unless you don't have it for that app that app can't see it or it can't do anything but there's not there is no advantage to a in sending ndi from one app to another on the same mac 
um, you get no advantage and all disadvantage. And so there's no reason to do that. <laughs> like, so uh, if you're sending to another computer, of course, you need to use NDI to make that work. Next question. Paul Wallace from Texas asks, Liberty, what is your essential toolkit, apps and software that you use for graphics design and social media? And as we've said a number of times already, it depends. But I will say that you must be like in sync. I'm actually working on a, a cheat sheet to bring all of that together. I would say if you are a solo creator or say a freelancer, uh, you the Photoshop is still very, very relevant in how um, the complexity of the graphics that you're working on. Um, but then there are many people who, from the social side of things, you are, we did a Canva workshop um, earlier this year. So Canva, there is that that primarily. And now the reason I say Canva is because of the ability to have other people to be able to access those graphics and that they're templated and you have so much more control over it. Um, so that's from the graphic standpoint, you all graphics and design, I put those into the same bucket, social media, if you're looking for scheduling and, and times have changed. And because before Hootsuite, um, Sprout Social, those were some of the more dominant players, they still are in the game, but a lot of the platforms now are creating the metrics that you you are looking for, that your potential clients are looking for, and most importantly, the scheduling. That's why a lot of the, again, the Sprout Social, the, the Hootsuites, the Planalies out there, the Laters, those four, I would say. Um, and they vary as well because some are, okay, they only do Instagram or they only uh, the first two do all of the um, all of the social media platforms. But you want to look at I would say not to worry about learning all of them, but learn what makes sense for your workflow because you can have all the tools that are out there, but if you are one paying, <laughs> paying for any of them and you're not using them and not using them effectively, better to learn a handful that you're able to use and create a really solid workflow because Ultimately, it's about you getting your content out there and then being able to optimize and review your metrics so that you can then improve on your uh, on your return on investment. Alex? Yeah, the uh, I will say that Affinity at this point, I'm using most of the time. And right now there's an there's a I think there's a, a sale of $99 for Affinity. And I've been using I, I don't have any affiliation with them. I don't know anybody there, but, but I can say that, that the, um, that I, that I'm probably going to buy the $99 version. I have the, the V1s and, and their design. I use it 90% of the time. I fall back to Photoshop. I think that it, a lot of times if it's more about my, I've used in Photoshop for 30 years. And so I know how to do something. I don't have time to figure out how to do it in affinity. I, affinity can probably do it. I just don't know how to do that. And I'm in a rush. So that's the only reason I keep Photoshop around. Um, I have not felt like I needed to do anything. I feel like the designer allows me to do any of the 2D stuff that I used to do in Illustrator. I don't really use Illustrator anymore. Um, and so so that's, uh, so I think that the Affinity line is pretty good for graphics. Um, for design, I mean, again, we we discussed stuff over the weekend in Discord about like someone was doing some really great designs. and. And uh, John Snyder was really close to getting something done in Keynote that was almost the same as what someone was probably doing in a compositing package. So, you know, between Affinity and, and Keynote, I think you're, you'd go pretty far as far as being able to lay things out. Um, you know, I would watch what happens with social media uh, over the next little bit of time. Um, I, there is a strong 
push to get rid of all automation and social media. And so you, you know, all the automated tools may become defunct in the next two years uh, because the only way to get rid of bots. And so, um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of discussions in the back end of people ta- talking about turning off all the knobs. And so we'll see what Elon Musk does, but, but there's t- turning off all the access outside the app is, a, is something that's starting to build in momentum. Which is why a lot of these apps are now creating them in-house. So to your point yeah. of just watching where this shift happens. Um, next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia says, I have a brother in love. Oh, we saw what you did there, Tony. I have a brother in love who has a Windows laptop and wants a setup. What should he get? Logitech C920? Brio? What lights? And what are the links to quality $30 microphones? Let's start with Courtney. Well, I don't know about the quality $30 microphones. If you want to go with a little more, uh, they got a good sale on it. Uh, on uh, the Amazon right now, you get this package of an uh, Audio-Technica AT2020 USB mic. comes with a set of headphones and the boom arm for $89. That'd be a good setup to get. It's 50% off today on Cyber Monday. And uh, I just got uh, one of these. Oh, I'm holding it by its neck. Oh, that's bad. It's like lifting up a baby by its neck. The new new Link 360, uh, uh, I mean the Insta360 Link, uh, which is a, a nice little camera, and they're a whole five percent off today, so you can get fifteen bucks off. Whoopee! Uh, I'd vote for that over a Brio or or a 920. Uh, Brio would be, of course, the better of the two. The 920, the lesser of the two. And as for lights, I'd go with the Niwar big panel lights, a 12-inch or 15-inch, which is what I'm using to light my big fat face right now. And Mitchell? Yeah, I'm a Courtney on the camera. Uh, I would go with the Nan lights or go to even to Elgato. And uh, for a microphone, I heard one that uh, John Idelson has. It's a Samsung Go. And um, as long as you're not working it close, it sounds great for 30 bucks. It literally is $30. So uh, get a foam uh, windscreen for it, too. Next question. Chris Widener of Lafayette, Indiana, says, This is the nerdiest place I can ask. Without actually going through census data, is there a reliable place to look up the number of iterations of a name currently in use by living people? I'll need the data before May or June. Jason. Yes, there actually is a place, and it looks like the website is down today, but there are a few places that have the interface. Um, So I will put a link in Mukana for one such thing, maniacs.info, but howmanyofme.com will actually parse U.S. census data and and give you a a pretty good snapshot of um, of at least the last publicly available census and – and yeah, and how many how many people are living with with any given name? Nigel? Sounds like a perfect answer. I was only going to add that when I'm stuck wanting a piece of market data or a piece of information, and I can't think of what to Google or how to search for it, I go to my local library. And particularly if you're near a university or a large uh, city, they have all sorts of interesting access to data and records and reports and market information. And if you find a good library, they'll sort of get you some of that. And sometimes it's really worth that extra effort. And Courtney. Uh, I use uh, Wolfram Alpha as a great search engine. It can generate uh, graphs for you. Uh, uh, you I do it to prove to people that Courtney is not a woman's name. 
uh, constantly. Uh, and it, it, it can show me a chart of people with the name, surname Courtney by year and by gender, and a chart to see that there weren't any women named Courtney until the mid-70s. So, uh, it, but it's great for doing, I say, if somebody put it in a little book for little girls' names is what happened. Uh, <laughs> and before then, it was primarily a man's name. Anyway, the uh, Wolfram Alpha is amazing. You just type in your request. It can generate charts of popularity and, and, and with numbers, and it pulls off historical data and census data, so it's pretty accurate. As far as people with your exact name, I'd go with Jason's suggestion. Next question. Tommy Schantz from St. Paul, Minnesota, asks, Would Playout B be able to be installed and run on a 10-year-old Mac Mini or MacBook? I would think that would be a great repurposing with the Cyber Monday deal. Alex? I don't know for sure because I haven't done it. So I, I don't, it's not practical knowledge, but I don't see any reason why it couldn't um, play out uh, from that, given that it runs off of Raspberry Pi. <laughs> so uh, you may have some, you know, it depends on what operating system and so on and so forth. Obviously, Jonas would probably be able to answer that in the back end in Discord, but um, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't be able to do it. Next question. Lukas Herzog from Mainz, Germany. Speaking of RFI documents and such, what tools do you use to organize such data? Alex? Google Docs. I, I, <laughs> yes. we've, we've tried a lot of different things and we've tried a bunch of other processes and management tools, but everyone just knows how to use it. It's easy to set up. It's not very expensive and it just works. And, and it's not perfect. We, you know, we get frustrated. I don't like building documents in Google Docs. I use Google Docs and then we... But the first version of it oftentimes is on a, on pages or numbers or or something like that. Um, I When I do my own RFIs, I have to admit that I use Apple Notes. And the reason I do that is because all my devices will be, you know, it's just very easy for me to open and it's just available and I don't have to log into a web page and so on and so forth. So I'm a little different when I do it, but, but, when, I, but when we send it out, it's all Google Docs. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer, Vieira, Florida. What do you use as a Zoom ISO test card for positioning future presenters? Thanks. Alex? The green one that comes with it. I'd love to say that we do something different or, or, or work out something, but we, but we haven't really started. You can customize them. You can upload your own image and put them in there to have them go out. Um, but we haven't gone, I haven't gone that far yet. Next question. David Brady from New York City. Blackmagic designed streaming bridge keeps dropping connection slash falling asleep after a period of time. Is this normal or is mine a lemon? Alex? I don't know. I mean, I, I, the thing is, is that I think when the bridge came out, and the reason I don't know is because the, when the bridge came out, I thought it was a horrible idea. So, so I was just like, I don't think this is actually going to work very well, you know, and um, it's so dependent on that connection, that back and forth that, that I, uh, I've never bought one. <laughs> and so um, I, I will say that I'm going to guess that it may be just something that it does, but we'll, we'll go let Courtney jump in. Courtney? I don't have any firsthand knowledge, but I've heard people say that if you're running it through a switch that is a green switch, that there's a lot of oh. these switches and routers these days that go to sleep. If they don't see any active data moving uh, over a period of time, they will just shut down that uh, spigot. So make sure your switch does not have any green, uh, you know, power saving. Uh, go into the power saving mode on that. Make sure it's not uh, turned on. That's a good call. Jason. 
I bought one immediately because I thought it was a great idea. And uh, Guy and I played around with it um, the first day, I think, or the first couple weeks that it came out. And it, it performed marvelously. I th- believe it was port 3501 that had to be hard outed. Since then, I've used it for intranet-based stuff uh, quite a bit. And it has been flawless with one exception, green switches. Courtney, Courtney nailed it. Kill that green switch and uh, you'll be just fine. And Alex. And that's a systematic problem. I just want to underline what Courtney said. As soon as he said it, I was like, oh, that's what's, that's what I, I'm going to guess that you have a green switch somewhere in there. The first thing that we do when we get new switches is get in there and turn off all the eco settings because uh, whether it's this or, or Dante or anything that's using the network, you don't want a switch that's turning on and off all the time. Next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana says, has anyone tried Enreal Air? AR glasses. I keep seeing ads. What did you click on, Chris, that they're now all over, Alex? <laughs> I see them too. Uh, you know, it's interesting that the interesting thing that I, the puzzle that I don't think, I think that they are trying to, you can see on their website that they're really trying to handle is that a lot of people who use computers use wear glasses. And there is a real sensitivity to taking the glasses off all the time or, you know, and, and and if you're using a computer, sometimes the contacts don't work as well. So like, I don't wear contacts all the, I have contacts, but I don't wear them all the time. Um, and I'm super sensitive to AR glasses and, and VR glasses that require me to do something like put contacts in. Um, and I think that that's going to be a real challenge for a lot of these AR. They look really cool. They look like they could be, you know, you could, they look like a pretty, you know, 84, I think it's 84 PPM uh, or, or something like that is not incredible. So it's not like it's the highest quality video screen you're going to ever see. So I don't know if I would want to put them on all the way that they sell it is like, you can have extra monitors. I don't think that that's really going to be the case. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see. We're going to see a lot of AR glasses as people try to get in before Apple does whatever it's going to do. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And Courtney? Well, this is a sticky subject, but remember, I, I don't know which uh, the this in real AR glasses. Usually, to for it to work successfully, it has to block off all your vision and have cameras within the AR headset that then replicate what you would be seeing where your eyes not covered. Um, the ones that are clear glasses that you can see through that have augmented reality, they're not going to be able to stick anything to anything unless they're extremely sophisticated and track your eye movements. Because think about it, you can move your eyeballs left and right without moving your head at all. So the inertial detection uh, devices that are inside those glasses that detect your head movement uh, is not going to work with eye movement. So. Uh, unless they're very sophisticated and track your eyeball movement, which they do have little cameras that look back at your eyes and can do that. It's going to be heinously expensive. And uh, so I think the ones they're talking about have LCDs in front of you that reproduce what's coming in from a pair of cameras that are on the front. And I, I think that the, the funny thing about it is also is that I, uh, the one thing that I loved using with glass was the camera. That's <laughs> what nobody puts in there because they had so much trouble with it. But the camera was the number one feature. And so every time I see an AR new glasses, I go, oh, camera, no camera. Okay, I don't need that. <laughs> I just walk away. Just like that. Yeah, like... Uh, Next question. Paul Wallace from Texas says, Courtney Gooden, you got an Insta360 link. Do you notice the one major defect it has on the PC compared to the Mac? Courtney? I haven't noticed that because I haven't plugged it into a Mac yet, and I only had it for about an hour last night to try it out uh, on After Hours, and uh, 
It came at nine. I ordered it in the morning during the show. Came by nine o'clock at night. Same day delivery. Uh, so it's neat. And I installed the software. I've noticed the only problems I've noticed is the gesture control is not very good. You have to do this to do zoom, and that doesn't work very well. Uh, and the other problem is if you have it feeding anything else, including its own app, with a, if you have its video image up on its app and you're using the app to zoom in and out, it can't be feeding Zoom or anything else. It can only feed video to one uh, piece of software at a time. And I haven't plugged it into the Mac, so I can't really tell you. But please tell us, Paul. Let's, let's see what Alex has to say. What the problem that, is. That may be the issue because on a Mac, you don't think about that at all. Like when you when you put the Insta360 in, it, it's just showing up everywhere. You know, anywhere that opens up, you can see it in three different apps, four different apps. That used to not be the case with with Apple products, but it, it has been for the last couple of years. And so that may be the de the defect that 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 uh, Paul is referring to. Um, and but the interface did the interface look any? I don't know if you've seen the Mac interface, so I don't know if the interface looks any different for you other than not being able to see that, Courtney. I have not downloaded the Mac software yet. I haven't plugged it into the Mac yet. I have a Mac Mini here, but uh, I had a big power failure yesterday, and it just rebooted. So I haven't even looked at it since it rebooted. So. Yeah, it's right. so fresh. We'll we'll see you in after hours in the next couple of days or so. Next question. Christian Pryor Mamoulian in Wolfsburg says, I want to move my audio post-processing workflow from initially cleaning up in Audacity to cleaning up in DaVinci Resolve. Any helpful tips how to best leverage the Fairlight page? Alex? There are some, there are some great training that, uh, that Blackmagic does, and there's also webinars that Blackmagic does that are two or three days on on the Fairlight page, and I would highly recommend them. They're the the people the, I can't think of her name right now, but the woman who runs the Fairlight uh, tutorials or the or the webinar is very technical and very good at talking through those things. And um, I would highly highly recommend. It would save you a lot of time to go through that. Next question. Joseph Mueller in Guelph, Ontario, asks: How do you manage a very dynamic speaker? On a live Zoom call, they can be very quiet at moments and get very enthusiastic and loud as well. What audio chain and equipment do you recommend so the audio recording is good? Bill? Well, I was going to say that Dynamics Processing has a lot of tools. And so depending on what you can feed into your Zoom call, you might do a, a research on Dynamics Processing. Look particularly for devices called Companders. They're compressor expanders. That's their goal is to take uh, loud sounds and make them soft and take low sounds and make them louder at the same time and get them all into the same range. Too much of that, though, and you're you're kind of spoiling the effect of difference that is real when people actually talk to you in person. But it's one of the tools. Alex may have better solutions, but that's what I'd say. Alex? Well, there's, you know, it depends on what, what how you know this person. <laughs> one, one way to solve this is a little bit of wetware in that you talk to them about the fact that, that, that they would sound better if they maintained it. A lot of broadcasters are actually really good at going up and down. They go up and down in tone, but not up and down in volume, you know, and so they, they, they maintain a fairly sp specific volume. So some of it's just training people to not, not go back and forth as much as they, as they normally would. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, you know, you may need a compander, um, but the big things that you're looking for is number one is a limiter so that you can go, you can, you know, and, and a lot of times a hardware limiter is going to be better than a software limiter. I mean, I just haven't found that a software limiter works as well. Um, and so having a, a product that has a good, you know, um, limiter in it 
will, will allow you to go a little heavier so that they just they push up against the limiter as opposed to when they go really loud they push up against the limiter instead of instead of uh, overmodulating um and uh, and then of course a compressor for when they're getting quieter so you may want to and the thing with the compressor is you may want to dig down a little bit deeper into the, like negative 20 negative 24 I usually don't compress more than two or three to one, you know, so that's, that's the, the most that I will typically compress. Jesse. Uh, yeah, well, a couple things to consider, you know, if it's subjective loudness and it's not distorting, then it's not really a problem for the recording itself. So you really want to look at if you're creating digital distortion, uh, because it's not removable later on. So, um, gain structure, um, setting that appropriately for the loudest thing that the person will do and maybe offering a little bit of time to say, all right, let's hear what you had for breakfast. Okay, now let's hear something that you're really excited about and getting all of those uh, practice levels out of the way um, in your tech check. And then if you really just focus on the recording, then you can use something like 32-bit float recording, which will eliminate that possibility really of getting um distortion on the recording um and there you go i think that's what you can do mitchell real quick yeah i'm with alex i think a, a compressor is a good one uh, i would look at dbx i think they have a two series and behringer has an inexpensive one also Just goes in line does its job and courtney yeah, as they said, best to handle it without board audio gear like a, a limiter. Uh, be careful about turning on the automatic gain control in Zoom if that's your only choice. Because if there's any background noise at all, when they're quiet, it's going to bring up that background noise. And as soon as they speak, the, you'll hear it jump down. So that is the uh, least favorite choice of uh, things to pull out of your toolkit to affect this problem. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, says Restream is 50% off for Cyber Monday. What other common stream tools are running big sales today? Nigel? So Ecamm is 40% off your annual subscription. So particularly if you take the pro one with all the interviewer features, that's a pretty impressive saving. Does sound good. Next question. Richard Lavery in Belfast says we recently moved our switcher system to a rack outside of our control room. What are some great ways to cable back from the rack to the control room monitors? We have four HDMI monitors that are coming in from our SDI video hub. Alex? You know, you can order cable. You can, you can order some that are already built that way. So they, they'll be a bundle of cables. It'll be a snake that just has a lot of SDI that's on, the, on, on one end of it. Um, you can also convert to fiber depending on how far you're running this. And, and you know, so a lot of times we run a TAC-12 from one to the other, um, or we run the SDI, again, a bundle. You can also loom them. I have some around, oh, it's in my garage. I just found a, a bunch of loom. Uh, loom is a kind of a mesh that you can wrap around the cables to loom them together, to pull them together, if you already have them. Um, you know, so the, the big thing with HDMI monitors, and if you're coming from an SDI hub, you probably just run SDI right to the monitor and then convert it with a $30. I mean, because again, you could use something like NDI, but the NDI converters are going to be more expensive. And so you can get like a, for monitors that are not in the signal chain, you can buy $30 to $50 little converters that will convert from the SDI to HDMI without too much trouble. And Jesse? Uh, so, you know, I'll just consider a patch bay or some kind of, uh, if you're going to use a converter at the rack, something with a loop out so you can confirm that signal at the rack. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin asks Mitchell, what is required to be a voice to Alan? 
what tools and products are essential in this pursuit. Bill? I hadn't planned to be first on this. I was hoping to go second, but I will say that the only real thing you need to be any kind of successful voiceover talent is clients. <laughs> That's helpful. Mitchell? That's funny. I like that. Uh, and a voice. I mean, you have to have some uh, semblance of a voice that has uh, a reason to be uh, uh, selected and competitive. Um, as far as equipment goes, a you know a relatively good mic that works with you. Um, and I always include a, a preamp a equalizer processor just so you keep it in the range. Uh, some people may say it just needs to be clean. Sometimes I think you need a little bit of help uh, on the EQ side. And Courtney. Yeah, you did a good microphone with a good uh, preamp, and you need a quiet space above all with no reflection and uh, isolation from outside sounds because you don't want to be recording over and over again because you heard that motorcycle go by in the middle of your best take. Next question. David Brady from New York City has a late 2015 27-inch iMac. He asks, is there any way to mount to an alternate stand, perhaps with more tilt or height adjustment? The OEM easel, while stylish, is far from functional or ergonomic. Go ahead, Bill. So I, this was interesting to me because I realized that iMacs have uh, that weird mounting thing. There are no Visa mount holes in it. Somebody has come up with one that actually does a real interesting job of this, and I have a picture of it here. Uh, you will notice that that mount is not attached to the back of the monitor itself. Is it, it is attached to the yoke that comes on all iMacs, and it creates a Visa mount for that. I thought this was a real interesting solution. It looks like it would work pretty well. That clamps on the actual stand of your iMac and makes it traditional Visa mount. At that point, you can move to heavier grip gear and hardware that'll be infinitely adjustable for your entire unit. And Alex? Well, you didn't say price. Oh, ouch. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I, the only one that we've done that we've done with iMacs that have been um, particularly successful are the monitors in motion. So they're not the, the $80 versions of these kinds of things, but you'll see there's a variety of different ones. There's the Boa, the Cobra, the Mantis, and the Copperhead. Um, I, we've, what we've used in the past have been the Mantis. Um, and so these have their own mounts and they will mount right into the, some of the, well, let's see, the adapter. And now I'm looking at their website and I'm just looking for, I know that they, we've used them where they have, they build the adapter. So there's an adapter that will go into the, to the, to the, to the iMac. So there's a, there's a, there's a slot there and you can remove that out and put something directly into that slot as opposed to trying to use you know, to do something else to hold that bottom piece that you don't need anymore. So, um, so it is possible to do that. And in the past, we've used monitors in motion for it. The big thing is, is that the way that their, their system works, it is super fluid. So what I will say is that I, I looked at their website, and I don't see that adapter right now. So maybe it's been a couple of years since I had to do that. But what I will say is that when you get that working, it just feels like you can just, you can just take it the most light, the lightest move and you just kind of move the monitor where you want it. Um, like I have ones that are much less expensive, the who Huanos or whatever, and they take some work. <laughs> like they're they're not they're not like you know there, there's like it you have to I have to adjust them a lot and pull them a little bit and they're not they're not you know but they're also one fifth the cost so so that's the thing you want to kind of take into account. And 
on the buzzer as we wrap up our first hour. Thank you so much, producers, for your questions. Feel free to go ahead and send your questions in for our second hour, which we'll be talking about goal setting and the systems and the strategies, whether those be personal goals, whether those be goals for your team, for your business. And a great place to start is actually defining what a goal is. And it is really at the end of the day, it's it's a result, something that you want to achieve. And with the new year looming, and that's so often when we look at, oh, I want to lose weight, or I'm going to be more organized, or dot, 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 insert what you want to do there. But there are so many books and resources out there. And we thought that this would be a great opportunity for us to share, swap some war stories of how you actually map out your goal, not only just identifying it, but then what are the steps that you should, could take to actually see those goals come to light? And we will start with you, Nigel, uh, goal setting. What what does that mean to you? So one of my favorite quotes is from Alice in Wonderland, where Alice says to the Cheshire Cat, which way should I go? And the Cheshire Cat says, where are you trying to get to? And Alice says, it doesn't much matter. In which case, said the Cheshire Cat, it doesn't much matter which way you go. And I think you've got to think of goal setting in that sense, that if you don't set a destination for you, your team, your organization, or your effort, then you won't know whether you've got there. And it really doesn't matter what direction you take. And for either yourself or the people around you, setting a goal is about setting a destination. It's about setting a place you're going to go to so that others can start to see within themselves and what they do. how, how they can help uh, you achieve that goal. And we can talk about some of the places this derails. The only other thing I would say on the basic uh, start of the subject is that uh, goals, interesting enough, like sales quotas, need to be both real and achievable. And so whenever I stare at a goal, I ask, is it real? Do, does that look like something they could do? And is it achievable? Now, yes, you want to push yourself and you may want to push your team. But if it's not achievable, if it's not a real goal that really gives the impact to your destination, then people will desubscribe from it very fast. Alex? Yeah, and for me, there's there's a couple different kinds of goals. Um, so there is a, to, to Nigel's point of, there's a place to go. There's For me, there's the big goal, the mission statement, which is the direction. So I'm trying to do something like, that may take decades. You know, like, so when I talk about like the, the mission statement for office hours is a global conversation where no one's left out. We're not going to get there in our lifetime. <laughs> like, let's, let's be clear. Like, we're not going to get there. That, that's a goal that is a, that, is a, that is a direction. It is what we're trying to create, but it's not something that we'll actually ever reach. So if you think about it, like, you know, this is the thing, you know, we're here. This is the, the mountaintop, the star, the whatever, the North Star of what we're trying to get done. Now we start building more achievable things, things that we have to get to that are on that on that path. So it does define the direction in which we're trying to get to. And we make decisions about, oh, this this idea over here is way off that goal. So I'm probably not going to do that one. But things that are in that in that area. And the other thing to note is sometimes they're like this. You know, they're not like they're they're not all on that path. They're like, well, I'm gonna go a little off here because I'm gonna go pick something up over here. I'm gonna run an errand over here and then I'm gonna come up over here. So you want to kind of think of that, but you also, but it does mean that if you see something out here, 
you just quickly decide that looks like a really great thing and it may, may be great, but it's not taking me towards the, the thing that I'm trying to get to. Um, and so that's one of the things when you start to think about those goals. Um, you know, I, I have a tendency to think in very long curves um, that aren't def- often defined by time. So they're defined by maturity. So I want to do something. I'm trying to get something worked out and I'm kind of working on it. A lot of times I, there's certain, a lot of my goals don't have a time frame, but a maturity frame. And I'm constantly working to get them down that path. And then some of my goals definitely have deadlines. <laughs> so, um, and those deadlines are, are required. I mean, a lot of times what we've talked about in the past are specific measurable results. So those are specific <laughs> to what Nigel was talking about. They are this thing, they're measurable. Like we can actually say that they got done and they are, they're a result. Like they're not just, this will happen. It's a result that was generated, you know, that is both both specific and measurable. And and having what we tend to refer to as SMRs um, kind of keeps you honest of like, I'm going to create these things by this time and I can and I can define that. And so you want to have those mixed in. Those are the pins that kind of keep moving you forward. But you also want to know that you, I think a lot of people make mistake of just deciding that they had to do something by the end of the year and they're not ready, but they're going to do it anyway. And then they just run themselves over a cliff. And I want to come back to that because you just even touched on the failure, how we fail sometimes when it comes to creating a goal for those very things, Uh, a resource, a book that I have read, and I will probably add this to my quarterly or yearly reading is the, the 12 year, the 12 week year. And that's the whole idea is because when people want to create a goal and then they don't necessarily, it's the measuring, like making sure that it's a priority, making sure that you keep looking at it. It's top of mind. And that's a little bit different than what you're saying, Alex, with the more broad and overarching one. But there are ways when you're creating milestones or benchmarks to help you um, to help you check in. But I do want to jump to Deborah, actually, um, De- Deborah Woodfork um, mentioned SMART goals. And I wanted to touch on that. We've probably You've probably heard of it. If you have not, that's um, just essentially SMART. So S-M-A-R-T. And I'm going to do a quick example of that. So SMART being specific, measurable, actionable, relatable, um, and time-based, much of what has already been discussed, but actually using an example of that. So I'm looking to grow my TikTok by like, right now I'm like 19 followers. You don't need to follow me, but I wouldn't mind if you would. But <laughs> 19 followers, but my goal is, so I want to grow my TikTok. So that's going to be the specific goal here. I want to grow TikTok. And the measurable part of it is that I am going to post consistently for 90 days. So beginning from, um, so 90 days, let's put that in there. And is it achievable? Yes, because I want to test out some things, test out some theories that some accounts and some influencers that I've heard use. So that will actually help us next year when it comes to strategy and planning. And that, uh, so that's the relevant side of it. Is it actionable? Yes because I'm going to create content consistently. The way that I'm going to be able to do that is each week I will batch content. So I'm not going to be just creating videos each and every day. That's not realistic. But if I set aside a day once a week or every two weeks and I batch a bunch of videos, 
that will help me to be able to make sure, again, that it is attainable, achievable. And then time bound, I'm going to start December 5th. And then by March 5th, we'll see where I get. So just as an example of breaking that down, because I know in the past, when it comes to goal setting, I will look for examples, look for stuff and do a lot of research online to see what systems are working, what aren't. And examples always help. So hopefully um, that will help someone just kind of think through what, how you can actually map out your SMART goal. Um, Kenneth? Exactly what, uh, you, what you just said. I have SMART written down here on my little notepad, specific, measurable, realistic, achievable, and time-bound. Um, uh, although I think I probably spelled that wrong. But anyway, um, it, it doesn't help if you do all those things once, arrive at your destination, and then do not pay attention to how you got there. So there's this revisiting thing that has to happen. You know, what did you set out to do? What actually happened? And then what will you do differently to manipulate your result the next time? And that's developing systems. And so systems, I think, are sometimes better than goals. I do the things I know I need to do to achieve what I want to achieve. And if outside forces affect my ability to achieve, then that's not a system problem. That's an individual knockoff of, of some anomaly that time. It's worth looking at, but it may not be worth regrouping your entire approach to a thing. Develop a system that operates properly and look at this, this circular, go back and see what you did before and what can you tweak to make things better going ahead. Nigel. Yeah, I mean, um, ditto on the systems things work. The systems are um, a badly written book, really good idea. If you've not come across the idea of that, that's, that's I think, a really important thing to do. Uh, I would tell you systems and goals are different, are different things. But the most important thing about the goals, which someone said, is not only that they be smart, but they be communicated. So having goals for yourself is one thing. But if you are part of a team and you do not communicate those goals and you don't synchronize those goals, then two things happen. No one else knows what you're trying to do. But more importantly, you probably have dependencies on others. And, and then goals start to get linked. And if you have a specific dependency on someone to execute something, and that's not part of their goal system, then there's going to be that disconnect. One other thing I wanted to observe, which is there is a, a something I see in people which we call unstoppability, which is people set themselves goals and then they don't reassess whether those goals are real, achievable, and still actionable. Because things change, right. you know, um, that there's a big difference. So make sure you don't get caught in unstoppable goals. And Bill? I noticed that um, right there, interestingly enough, Nigel had added an S. He didn't say goal setting. He said goal setting. And to me, that is the most important part of this. You can never get by with one goal. You always have to have a series of goals. Because often goals are in conflict. It's really easy to say, I want to double profitability, uh, but what, what do you want to do about employee satisfaction? Maybe doubling productivity makes your employees miserable, or, and they, or they start cutting corners to achieve profitability, and they make a lousy product, and your reputation is damaged. So you're always balancing a system of goals to try to tune up the engine of your business moving along so that it works in harmony, because one thing getting out of whack can take down a whole enterprise. And what are the, the challenges? And Alex, I'll let you say this before I go into the question. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, again, one of the things that I do a lot is I, I have goals and I think about them a lot about what I want to do. And I'm constantly working on them. Again, in some of them have time and some of them don't. But 
one thing to remember is luck is usually when, you know, opportunity, you know, meets uh, preparation, you know, and a lot of times I have this huge box of things that I've been working on <laughs> that, that related to my goals. And then a client comes in and they go, well, I'm thinking about doing this thing. And I'm like, here, why don't I just, why don't we just do this? <laughs> and, and we, I hand it over to them. And a lot of the testing, a lot of the other stuff all comes together at that point. But again, I don't necessarily feel like I, a lot of times I won't do something half hatched, you know, because it, because I have it, you know, or because I just want to get it done. I keep on working on those ideas and sending them. And then the day-to-day stuff is very related to goals and and specific things, but you want to have those in two different things, because I think a lot of people collapse them um, where they think that they have to do this one thing by a certain date and they, and they rush through that and they end up with something that's, you know, not as optimal as they'd like it to be. So then and just even if we can take a moment to even focus on the challenges, because JJ made a comment just of people um, with goals to be sure to examine the major hurdles, all have a realistic budget of your resources, whether those are time, money, kinetic energy, whether extent or borrowed. There are other things, to your point, Alex, that, okay, this goal and it's tunnel vision for the goal, but that how realistic is that? Because there are other factors that play into it. I, I, I do want to go back to what Nigel was talking about, about expressing it, because a lot of times when you're talking about what you're excited about, things happen around it. You know, so mm-hmm. the thing is, is if you have a goal and you're talking about your goal and what you're trying to produce, and especially if you can enroll other people in that goal and the idea behind it, um, you know, things start to happen on their own, but you, they don't happen if you don't talk about them. So if you don't talk about the ideas that you have related to that, then you, you, you'd be surprised at how often, I mean, I ended up with a, I ended up with a school that still exists in Rwanda because I was talking about my goal of building a school in Africa to someone on a plane next to me on a, on a uh, new year's Eve flight, <laughs> you know, like, you know and, 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 you know, I talked to her and she talked to someone at Carnegie Mellon and then Carnegie Mellon invited me. And then, you know, so that, that one random conversation of me talking about my goal and the fact that I've been working in that, but I had been working in Africa for almost 10 years when that happened trying to figure out where I was going to put a school. And so I've been working towards that goal, but speaking it into the real world had someone go, Oh, I know someone that you should talk to about that, you know, and, and and I spoke to a lot of people, you know, and then one person said, Oh, I know who you should talk to. And, and, and then it still took two years, you know? So the thing is it still took two years after that initial car, three years after that initial conversation for there to be a school on the ground, which is again, still, still there. And so, but, but random conversations, you should not, uh, you know, my wife can see me change gears sometimes. <laughs> like, like, you know, like I see someone who might be close and I, I start talking about this, this thing and, and trying to create, you know, and, I, and I'm not only speaking it to that person, but I'm refining how I speak about it, you know, and so that I can, um, you know, keep on expressing that idea. But um, sometimes it takes, it took, again, 10 years of me nugging be, to be prepared to have that conversation. I couldn't have done it if I just had an idea. I had to have done 10 years of work. And producers, this is a great opportunity for you to submit your questions for our panel to answer as we continue the discussion. And Alex, I like what you said, too, of just the idea of speaking it out loud. And what I want to also add to the conversation is don't be afraid that because we are talking about goal setting. So not just having the goal, but actually putting together the strategies or getting it put down so that you can then like run your race and not to be afraid of enlisting help. If 
because there are some folks that you're either in, if it's a personal goal, you're in an organization. And so you have your goal and whether that be a coach, whether that be, I know um, last year I was just looking at my health and yes, I'm an athlete. I used to play basketball, volleyball. I played all the things I know what to do in, I want to lose, you know, 10 pounds, but because of the constraints of life and motherhood and work, it made more sense for me to enlist the assistance of a trainer so that they would just plug and play. You tell me when to show up, what to do, because it's just, it, it, um, it's less that I have to think about because all I need to do is execute. They're the ones who's good at that. I tell them my goal and then they figure out the strategy to help me to achieve that. So I think that's also a part um, of the conversation is it's okay to get help. You do not, you can Google all you want. And yes, there's that opportunity too. But by finding even um, business-wise, we ha- had a consultant that looking at into 2023 that we want to do some things differently and talking through the consultant to map out what that would look like because they've done something that we haven't done yet. And that just being, you know, that being something that is a resource and, and helpful. And you don't, they're not always paid consultants as well. There are the SBA and just going on the business side for a moment, the SBA has mentors and, and access to people who can help you map out goals, especially if they're business or, or financially related as well. But before we go to the questions, I did want to touch on some of the pitfalls when it comes to goal setting. So you've identified the goal, then what are some things that you can help to to keep you on track. Nigel? Yeah, so I I think you have to separate out, as Alex did, your mission, which is a long-term goal from your short-term goals um, that that are happening within the period of time, be that within six months or within a year. And again, if you're you're on your own in your own business, this is easy to do than when you are required to communicate more broadly and get other people on side. And I would tell you that if you're not clear between what your mission is and what your short-term goals are, people will think you're overreaching. There's actually nothing more depressing than overreaching goals because you set yourselves up for failure in the short term. So that's why the timeline is so important. And and you don't always have to give it, but, but separating out your mission from your goals because when you start communicating them, people won't buy in if they look overreaching. Let's get into these questions. Douglas Carmichael asks, would learning a skill outside your past area of focus, like 3D graphics for an audio IT focused person, what are some useful ways to set realistic goals? Hmm. Outside. So if you are thinking about learning something new, it always helps one of the best things that I've I've heard and then also just myself is just doing that research phase of seeing, you know, what's out there talking to people is always something that is helpful. So then that way you, you know, there are experts and getting their insights and their strategies, much like you asking us here on how to do that. And then once I figured out, okay, taking the best, the cream of the crop of the responses that they shared, then I then kind of put out I look at say like 12 weeks. I found that to be, I'm pretty good with 30 and like 60 days. 
and because this is something that's personal and then put together a plan to help me. Okay. I'm going to spend this much time each day because muscle memory is what helps so that you can, you know, this is something new. So that's a, a habit so that you'll then be able to work through the elements and really learn it so that your, your keyword here, like developing a new skill bill. Yeah, to me, there was a thing that I came to early in my career about the inside versus the outside view. Uh, whenever I was looking at any industry or something I wanted to do or a skill I wanted to learn, I was always on the outside because I hadn't actually participated in that thing before. So I would think about here's how I think it should work. And inevitably, what I got on the inside, about 50% of what I thought was going to be important to getting that accomplished turned out to be utterly useless. And there was another, you know, bunch of things that turned out to be important. And so, um, I think that's always going to happen. I, you know, I, there have been times when I said, I want to learn more about design or something like that. And then I started down the path of trying to learn more about design things. And I realized, wait a second, there's a lot more math in here than I thought. You know, there's a lot more ratio and, and balance and things like that. Do I really want to go down that path? Is that a strong suit or do I really want to stay on a more created and less structured side? Not that those things don't mix, but I'm just saying you got to take a shot and see if the skill fits for you. And you're never going to learn until you actually start trying it. So for me, action and starting off down the path and actually doing work and seeing if it continues to make you satisfied and happy that you're making progress, that's the key. Alex? And this is more of a project, but as you think about a, something you're trying to execute in the world, um, one structure that, that I've kept for a long time from something I took a long time ago was there are basically five five things that that you're looking at it as in a project the first is is formulation so you decide uh you know, you've got to figure out what you want to do uh, the second is concentration and, and what defines concentration is you're going to put way more energy into it than you're going to get out of it <laughs> just push a ton of stuff into it and then a little drop comes out the other end what comes after after concentration is momentum momentum is you're putting less in and getting more out and so that that starts to occur at some point if you if your concentration and if your formulation is right then you have stability where things start to just, things are predictable. They're going to keep on happening the way that they are. You've gotten past momentum and yet now they're just working. And the final version of that is mastery, which most people don't never get to. <laughs> so, so anyway, so where you truly master what you're doing and how, and how that works. The, the key with that structure is to think about that you can very quickly put, if you don't formulate well, you can very quickly put a ton of concentration is something that's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> so, so you, you know, you're never going to get to momentum because you didn't do the formulation. And so you really do want to think about when you talk about realistic goals, you don't want those goals to be so realistic that they don't go anywhere, but you do want to do the research. And again, the thing that I'll keep on bringing up over and over is, is find a way to get yourself into working on it, you know, work on it and work on it specifically in projects. You can do projects on your own, but you have to very quickly be working with other people or you're, you know, it's, so inefficient <laughs> to try to do stuff by yourself. Like it just, it is so much more efficient. And that's why part of why office hours exist this is way more efficient to work with other people than to try to learn on your own. Next question. Keenan Campbell from Nevada asks, what tools do the panel use for tracking goals, projects, ideas, and so forth? Bonus Mac app available. Nigel. The simplest one I can find is the answer to that question for me. I have looked at and used 50 different apps and tools and they fail on two respects. One, they're harder to use than they are at the benefit. And second of all, no one else can use them. And I think where people often 
fall in love with a particular tool. It really fits the way they work. But the moment they have to share it with someone else, the logic doesn't stand. So I would tell you a simple Google Doc, a simple Word file, a simple pages document that everybody can see and understand is more useful than a tool that nobody else can track. Alex? For myself, notes. <laughs> so, so I don't, you know, when you're talking about other things, Nigel's spot on. Uh, when for myself, uh, I have folders of things. So, so things that are goals, I have whole folders on them and ideas that, that, I, that I put into there all the time. And I'm constantly like, if I think of something, whether I'm at a computer or I'm at my iPad or I'm at my iPhone, I'm sitting there just putting a bunch of stuff into it and constantly adding to those things um, as, I, as I work. Plus one on that for myself, notes is my friend because it goes across all of my devices. So at any time that I need to jot down and I, I'm re- a stickler with folders on notes. So yeah. that way that I and- I know exactly where to go for that thought or for whatever that is. What were you going to say, Alex? And good titles. Um, put yeah. t- The title is really important. And then the other thing that I do is when I'm thinking about something a lot, I tend to pin those. So I pin those notes. Notes is the most, it's it's the most under underestimated app on the Mac. Amen. Is that, you know, you because you can sit there and build folders, you can put stuff into it, you can take pictures and stick in, you can draw on it if you have, have an iPad. Um, you can um, you know, all these things that you can do to add ideas into that into that process, but you can pin those. So that there's something I'm thinking about a lot. I just pin it. So it's always at the top. I don't have to find it because I gotta tell you, if I don't do that. I put, I add, you know, five to 10 notes a day, you know, like I, every time I have a meeting with a client, I open up notes and I put the notes in, you know, into there so I can find it. And all of that stuff is there because again, as Liberty said, it's on all my devices and it doesn't, and I don't have to go to a webpage. I don't have to figure those things out. It's all, it's all there for me. And then to the Google part. So, you know, Google Sheets um, for helpful for tracking. Also Google, oh, why did it just slip me the, for the design, the PowerPoint equivalent, PowerPoint um, uh, on slides. Google. Thank you. <laughs> like, where did that go? Thank you so much. Um, slides. And that just helps. And that's more so external. So that helps if we um, need so we can take the data that is in sheets and put it in slides for presentations or anything um, of that nature. And something that we added last year was actually using Notion as, um, the, as a lot of the industry continues to build that, you know, when new SaaS products um, come into play, then you, you test them out. And we found that Notion was helpful, again, because of what either clients and or vendors are using so that we can, um, when we're tracking, that we have everyone on the same page. Next question. Kyle Heyman in Chicago. What is the optimal number of metrics you track for any one goal? Nigel? One, uh, you, you can put more than that in. But at the end of the day, the goal, you've got to ask yourself, what do you want to achieve? By when do you want to achieve it? And how will you know if you've achieved it? And it's the how you'll know whether you've achieved it that is probably the best place to put numeric. And you can put five or six numbers. You can put multi-different uh, multi things against it. But you're setting yourself up for failure in goals because then if you miss one, you know, well, I, I missed this metric, so the goal was or it wasn't. So if you have lots of different metrics, break them down into sub-goals. And Alex? And to kind of build on that a little bit, uh, one of the things to think about is, is a, you know, you might have a goal out here and this is your goal to get something done. And then what you want to do is go backwards. Okay. That, that's my goal in a year. And that's, a, I don't, and I have to admit, I don't think in 
other than I have projects and projects are something happening over the next month or the next couple of weeks, but goals for me are usually at least a year out. And so I have a goal. And then what I want to do is I'm here. And so I start backtracking. Where do I have to be? What's a milestone? So we, these are the milestones that I have to reach to get to that goal. So the goal itself can be really large. You have to start dicing it up into some kind of increment. It could be every quarter, every month. So I have milestones. And then I have, you know, intermediate goals or or basically these SMRs that I talked about that have to get done in, in a smaller area. So you start building these bigger pieces of what needs to get done. These can contract and expand a little bit, but you're really trying to hit those milestones because that tells you that you're on your way. So you have to think to get this done, what has to be in existence here to have this be realistic and what has to be here to have this be realistic. And so those are the things that you want to kind of try to think through to, to build on those because it's really easy to have a really big goal that is uh it's really easy to have a really big goal that is unapproachable because it's so big and so you have to dice it up into well this is what i have to get done to get that done i assume you named my name there there <laughs> again you were muted for a second there um so in the area of content creation because that's where i work more than anything else i've always thought that it i tell clients okay for this piece of work what is your primary goal and do you have a couple of secondary goals and i phrase it that way because i really want one singular goal for this piece of work and any metrics we track are against that if it's a simple metric friendly thing like we want to increase sales or we want to increase impressions in the marketplace or something like that you can often get numbers that'll support that uh, if it's more ephemeral you know uh this is branding and we want to create a good impression the only way you can really get statistics back is do a lot of research and things like that and that those are a little bit more squishy in terms of tracking them with pure metrics but in all cases i want that initial conversation to force the client to say our primary goal is x secondary and tertiary if you can do that if you can also make them aware that we're number one in the market and and you know maybe a call to action that tells them that we have operations in all 50 states or something like that yeah secondary tertiary are fine but the primary goal for me is the number one thing i always want to make sure that every piece of work i do is assessed against next question from Liberty White, when do you know it's time to change a goal? Nigel? So I think we should separate out changing a goal and abandoning a goal, because I think there are two different things. So I think when you look at, and hopefully you do a, you know, if you're doing an annual cycle, at least, maybe you should quarterly check your objectives or your goals and seeing whether you can achieve them. And then that quarterly cycle, you might say, is this now real and is this now achievable? And the answer is it may or it may not be. And by the way, it may be nothing you've done wrong. It may just be luck and some other thing that happened. And in that case, you should either change it or delete it. I think if, however, you're managing somebody else's goals, so an employee's goals, before you start changing and deleting them and you let them change and delete them, understand what impact that has on your ability to do an annual review with them. Because what you want to do at the end of the year is go back to the goals and say, this is what we set as your objectives for the year. Did you achieve them or not achieve them? What you don't want to do is find that someone has sneakily managed to delete all the goals throughout the year that uh, were the things that you were going to use to work out whether you were going to pay them bonuses or not. If it's just you, you and yourself, then that's less important. Other 
then making, giving your word to yourself. And setting goals for yourself is also about giving word to yourself. And if you're willing to dismiss that, then that's another subject entirely. Mm, commitment, that big word there. Bill? Just to emphasize what Nigel said about sometimes you have control over something not. I'll never forget uh, seeing David Hasselhoff, of all people on TV, talking about the fact that he had this huge movie project that was about to break. And they'd spent months and months and months getting ready for this. And he turned on the TV the morning that they were going to release the whole campaign. And there was this white Ford Bronco going down in Los Angeles. It was the O.J. Simpson Bronco. And he said the entire campaign, everything they had spent months and months and months working toward just vanished because the audience was seeing nothing but this moment in a, in history. So you can do the best you can to try to plan and set up, but there, there always can be, you know, that the pandemic hits, something can go in and change all of your assessment and and it causes time for serious reassessment and changing goals is uh, sometimes a requirement when you discover that the thing you're trying to achieve is not what's happening in your process keeping track of the ultimate destination is the important point um, there's a story that some of you may not have heard about the well-established lumberjack crew who was busily clearing a forest on the side of a mountain and the leader of the company flew over the operation in a helicopter and noticed that something was amiss. He called down to the manager on the ground and said, uh, I have to tell you about something here. You're, you're not doing this right. And the manager on the, of the lumberjack team said, we seem to be doing pretty good here. What's, what's the problem? And the leader says, it's the wrong mountain. Wow. And the manager on the ground says, but we're making really good time. And so sometimes achieving step-by-step step towards the wrong destination isn't helpful at all. Begin with the end in mind, as, as they say in Seven Habits, and continuously move towards that end. Nigel? Yeah, I was just going to add a, a thought to a point Bill was making about uh, things that happen to you. There's quite a good book by Annie Dukes called Thinking in Bets. It's not a hard read, but she's a professional poker player. And what she talks about is learning to separate skill from luck. And that, you know, life is not like a chess game where there's sort of a definite answer, there's a definite solution. Life is more like a game of poker, which is a mixture of skill and luck. And sometimes a great strategy and a great goal fails not because it's not achieved, but because something else happened that you couldn't control. And sometimes you achieve an outcome, but you do have to go look and see whether you actually did anything to achieve that. The other thing which uh, which they talk about um, is when people look at a failed goal and decide the strategy was failed, or looked at a successful outcome and assuming that was the strategy, and they call it outcoming. And you do have to be sensitive to that too. And uh, I'm going to tie this together with the last question of just how many um, how many metrics do you track when looking at a goal? And I'll take this to the content creation or social media side of things where oftentimes people will abandon a, a goal because they feel like, oh, well, we didn't. And I'm just making this up as I go along of like, well, we didn't achieve, we didn't get the followers that we wanted. But then the importance of looking back at, well, what tasks or action items were behind that? Because oftentimes they're just looking at, okay, we said 90 days, we look at it at 90 days, but 
They didn't look at, okay, were you consistently doing X, Y, Z? Was there an ad spend behind it? And those things all play a role in whether you are, when whether you're getting to the goal or not. So you somewhat undermine yourself because you haven't really set yourself up for success. And something that's also really important when you're looking at a goal is time and giving yourself enough time to actually test and try and change things. And like they say, A-B testing. And then once you have done those things, then yes, okay, do we need to, is it adjusting the action items or is it actually adjusting the goal? Bill? Also, you know, sometimes uh, are you really responsible for all of your success? And I say that because I've seen circumstances where somebody got there at the right moment with the right product at the right time, and it blew up and became very successful. And then they think, wow, I'm really good at running this business. I should be able to do this over and over again. And they keep trying to do it and they keep failing. And their trajectory from the big success is down, down, down and out eventually because it wasn't really what they did that made it success. It was a confluence of circumstances that came together to make that thing blow up for right now. You know, uh, a try as they write, they might, there was never a product as successful as the Hulu for the guy who invented it. Uh, you know, they had built this structure and he thought I'll do it again and again and again, but there was a moment where that was just right. And it's very hard to sustain those things over the course of time. So your analysis of what really created your success should be at least realistically you know, what were the things you did that made this possible? And I, I resonate with what Alex said, you know, assembling a team, learning from other people, spending a lot of time ruminating on it. All that maybe got you to the first success, but now second, third, fourth, and fifth are going to be a different ballgame. Next question. Nigel DeSalle of Austin, Texas, and here on the panel says, does anyone do New Year's resolutions? Nigel. So I guess these are a type of goal, and uh, they're more a personal thing. And, and someone gave me some advice years ago, which is not to set New Year's resolutions, but try and commit yourself to what you'd like to be this time next year and try and imagine that future and build your way into that future. And you can set goals for it, but uh, actually just trying to think that through is the way I try and do my New Year's resolutions. Alex? You know, I took something on maybe, I don't know, almost 30 years ago that that I don't really do New Year's resolutions. I, there's kind of a, my family does it a little bit and it, a ceremony almost where I write the things down that I want to let go. You know, like it's just, I want to let this stuff go from the last year or from the past or whatever. And I let those things go at the end of each year um, and literally let them go and burn them. <laughs> like there's little pieces of, little pieces of paper and I burn them. Um, and I found that to be much more powerful than trying to set uh resolutions. It's just, just to really consciously say, I'm not going to worry about that any, that thing anymore. I'll say that I don't think I set resolutions. Like I'm not consciously saying, okay, this is my resolution for this year, but I do focus after reading Atomic Habits. That was a major book, a life changer for me. And while you'll hear me talk about muscle memory and making, if you want to change something, that that be the way you do it. There's an example that they share in the book of going to the idea of if you want to lose weight and you know that going to the gym is going to be one of your goals is to go to the gym three times a week. Well, what can you do 
to that. It's something that you're already doing that you can add to that to help you go to the gym. And I think the example in the book is that if you know one of the, um, something that might be friction for you is you know, when you get home, you just like go take a nap or you you don't go back out. Well, put the gym bag by the door so that when you leave in the morning, you pick up the gym bag, you go. So the gym bag is in your car on the way to the gym. So that's how I've been looking at like, what habit do I need to change to for said goal? So I more so look at, look at habits, which may be the same thing, but I think just mentally it helps me <laughs> think that I'm not really focused on a new year's resolution. Next question. Juan C. Robles of Mexico City, Mexico says, what is your criteria to determine that a goal is achievable? I look at, I look at a, a few things. So I look at resources and what resources are available to, to the goal, um, because then that could mean, okay, I have this goal, but this goal is not a short term and short term, I believe is three to six or under a year is what they categorize as say a, a short term goal or is it a mid year midterm goal. So I look a big thing for me is looking at the resources so that then I can put it in its right category because all goals are not created equal. Alex? Almost any goal is available, is achievable with enough uh, structure, time and money. Those are the three things. If you can structure it, uh, you can find the time and you can find the money. Um, and some things, it, what makes them not achievable is taking one of those three um, legs out of the system. So you don't have any structure or you don't have enough time or you don't have enough money or you, know, you can pull those around, but you, those are the three pieces that you have to have. And you know, I, could put, I could put a camera crew on the moon with enough time and money. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, you know, so I don't have any, you don't want to think of that they're not uh, achievable. It's just a matter of achievable in the, in the um, time frame and resource frame and structure frame that you have. Yeah. And I have a friend and associate who she says this all the time that if you, you can have, if you have time and money and that if you don't have the structure, you know, that's a fail or if you, or you'd have to spend more elbow grease on that. And if you don't have the structure and the money, then you're going to have to make it up in time. So that triangle of how that, that works, just thinking, well, when you lack in one area, that's, you're going to either have to overcompensate in another one. Next question. From JJ McKenna in Santa Venetia, California, the United States, when setting a goal, how important is a mission statement such as to revolutionize space technology with the goal of enabling people to live on other planets. Nigel? So we're about to enter into a quagmire of what is the difference between a mission and a vision. And, uh, and I've done this as uh, uh, many times, and I've discovered that most people have different definitions of both of them. So when setting missions and visions with people, I suggest you make sure you all have the same definition, because I find they're often swapped. For me... A mission is roughly about what we're doing this year or in the current time frame, whereas a vision is the world we're trying to achieve, a much broader thing. So I often start a vision with something like, in a, you know, the future of the world and a world that, that projects where we're trying to get to be much more multi-stage, uh, multi-years. But, but whether you have both or either, I would advise you if you run an organization not to have neither. Because again, as we've said a couple of times, if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter what direction you take. Alex? The way I think of it, I didn't really, I didn't have words for this until Nigel was talking, is for me, a vision is defining who I am 
a, a mission is where I'm going and a goal is how I'm going to get there. You know, like that's how I view those, those three pieces um, in that, in that se segment. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, my cousin teaches world languages and I've gotten her interested in office hours and the technologies behind it. What could be a way to set smaller goals that would improve her teaching without being intimidating? Alex? Just don't shit on people. <laughs> like you just, you know, you know, you just gotta be careful. Like when you have goals for other people, that usually is very close to um, getting into their business. Um, so, so just be careful of, you know, that that's the should is a, or how they should do it is is a um, dangerous place to be. <laughs> so, so you know, like you know, just I, I don't have you know, I let people develop their own goals, and then I help in the ones that I can help with. Kenneth? Yeah, should on people is a, is a dangerous place to be. That's absolutely true. It, it uh, generates feelings of inadequacy and immediate, immediately brings up a, a, oh yeah, response back from the other person. You should do this. Well, what's the matter with the way I've been doing it? So I, I favor more of a what if approach and do this in little increments, small stuff, and realize that this isn't going to happen overnight and you're not going to get them to do seven different things all at once and like it. So one at a time, small improvements and lots of adulation and praise when their situation noticeably improves. And Bill. Yeah, I was going to say also teaching is one of the oldest things that human beings have attempted to do literally from the time of uh, sitting around the fire. So there, it, there is no dearth of resources everywhere on the Internet and everything else about uh, the, the some of the more successful aspects of teaching. I'm not saying you can ever learn them this way. And, and in fact, I would probably uh, suggest that if you want the easiest path into it, find a, a teacher who is qualified and you respect and think so and talk to them about this. Uh, they will have a lot of knowledge about some of the things, but be able to say, if you're having a problem in this area, here are some of the traditional proven teaching techniques that can help. You want to be exposed to them, but you don't want to be locked in place by them because teaching theory and a whole bunch of other stuff changes over time. But I would make it a human interaction. Find find a mentor of sorts who could do that kind of thing. I think that would be useful. That's exactly, uh, I like that, Bill, of the bringing exposure to them and mentors. So those mentors could be by way of actually introducing them to some people. If you said she's getting interested in office hours, joining after hours, or even just being a part of the chat because they're building like relationships with people within the community. We have education hours that it's a great place for on Saturdays where she can get to know or, or yes, where she can get to know some of the educators and the tools that they're using because even through osmosis that will help. And so more along the lines of encouraging than necessarily pointing the finger on um, the finger out. Next question. JJ McKenna from San Benicia, California, brings us a question. JJ says, when allocating human resources, how important is communication to convey the alignment toward a corporate goal? Nigel. So it's obviously critical. And I think if you work in a large organization, probably about now you're going through, assuming your business is a calendar year, you're probably in the middle of your fall planning 
or your budgeting cycle for next year. And typically in a large company, so there are 15 different businesses that uh, report into our company. And so this is an iterative process where each of them issues a budget or a plan for next year. We add them all up. We look at what we want to do as a business and it either meets or it misses, in which case we remission them to go back and look at it. But at some point, there will be a compromise where people are asking for resources and there are allocation of what you can do. And at that point, you are going to have to make sure that you balance the reset of the goal with an achievable goal at the other end. Because if someone says, I need five people to complete on my mission, and you don't give them five people, then they either can't complete on the mission or the scope of their mission needs to be reset. And that is an iterative process. So for most of us, that takes a couple of months of the year. So we, when we get to December, we've been through that enough that we can say, this is now our plan for next year. And I'll add like, yes, communication is vital. Uh, I look at, uh, and as Nigel said, that in a corporate structure, this is something that's typically going on for weeks, for months, if that once June, July hits, you're all, they're already looking at the end of the year in 2023. And the most important question being how many people, what will it take to, to do this? And making sure that all the stakeholders on the project or in the department are on the same page. And going back to that is why communication is so important. That way everyone is on the same page and that your numbers all are in alignment. Next question. Hersha Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, and here on the panel asks, what would be great advice to the younger generation with regards to goals? Nigel? Life is a marathon and not a sprint. And you can be desperate to, you know, get to the end very quickly, but you may find that uh, that's impossible. In fact, the way I mostly describe it nowadays to, to people who I'm mentoring that are much younger is think of life as being like a video game, where at every level you need to pick up skills and resources to be able to execute at that next level. And thinking through what those skills and resources are before you move to the next level is really important because if you get there without them, you won't be able to complete the level. Now, the hardest part of that for most young people is to say, and I normally ask the question, where would you like to be when you retire? They go, well, I don't know how to answer that question. I go, well, do you want to be the world's richest person? Do you want to be, you know, the specialist in a specific subject? And try and get them to start to find broad goals. They obviously don't have to commit for 30 years ahead. But again, as long as they can sort of scope out where they want to start focusing, they can start looking at the skills and resources they need to acquire to walk through to that place. Bill? The other piece of advice I would give them, and almost hate to say this, but I'm going to, is just do your best. And the reason I say that is because I used to get asked a lot when people found out that I did voiceover or when I was making videos and they, I, I really want to do that. How do I do that? And you'd be around them for a while and you'd realize, I'm not sure that the skill set that you have at this point is going to ever get you to that. Uh, there are other things that I'm sure you can do that are fabulous, but creativity and, and working in the creative arts is difficult. It has a lot of downsides to it, as well as the fabulous upsides. And a lot of people want to do it, but they find they can't. It's like, you know, I want to be a rock star. Well, that's not maybe what you think it is. A lot of very young people who haven't figured out say that would be great. Yeah, it would be great, but it's not an easy path. And there is there are far more people who did not successfully 
uh, walk that path than people who unsuccessfully walked it. So I would just be careful about, you know, each individual who is a younger person in the younger generation has their own unique sets of abilities, disabilities, uh, things that will resonate with them and things that will drive them nuts out of boredom. And so each, the advice has to change for the person. That's my feeling. It, it, I don't think generic advice really works with the way that people really are. And I think what will work for the younger generation, but also us as the old, the older generation is finding an example. So finding an example of who, whatever the goal is that you're looking to achieve, because the biggest disconnect is having something like something in your mind, but not knowing how to get there. That's what holds many of us paralyzed. And if they can get into the habit of the research part of it, like the digging, the finding, the figuring out, that will help them that help them in life period. But then when you've got a goal to create, if there's something that's blocking you from getting there, that you'll go, let me, let me go dig, let me go research. So I would say that would be my advice is for them to gain that skill of, of researching and finding examples to help them piece it together. Next question. Paul Wallhouse from the Austin, Texas area asks, how many to do's do you have on your list on an average day? Jason? It depends. Um, no, okay. I'm going to constrain my question, uh, your question a little bit, and um, and simply say that, uh, for example, when it comes to my client's work, I, I try my very best to never get paid by more than one client in a day, um, which means on any given day, there's there's nothing that has my mind more than the the only job that is scheduled for that day. And then I tend to build around that. I may have other client meetings, but as far as, you know, what I'm getting paid to do, um, exactly one in a day. Next question. Eduardo Augustin from Panama says, how not to be discouraged when setting a goal and at the end, not getting the results expected? Nigel? So I think the first thing is make sure when you're setting your goals, they're both real and achievable. So if if you set yourself a, a, a completely unachievable goal, then it then you are really going to set yourself up. The other thing to do is to break the goals down into multiple different levels. So a sort of short, medium, long, or what we would do at work is we'd have a, a base and a stretch goal, and maybe even a stretch goal above that, and then be clear about what the difference is in terms of the resources, whether it's you or time or effort to get from a base to a stretch goal. And so you can look back at the end of the year and say, hey, we either made or didn't make the base goal, and then we made or didn't make the stretch goal. And the reason we didn't make the stretch goal was the following. And as long as you're being honest with yourself, that you'll find yourself in, in a good place. Alex? If you're making all of your goals, you're not playing hard enough. And if you're failing at all of your goals, you're probably not being realistic. <laughs> so you want to have a little bit of mixture of those. Um, and I and I think that you know I I talk a lot about failing forward. Uh, you want to be you want to have things that aren't working, and, and and you don't get to those things. But you also have to decide. You know, a lot of times I think this is related to what Nigel was talking about. Is I have an MVP for most things that we're doing, and then I have where I want the goal that I have for this show is to do or this project or whatever is to do all of these things. 
And then I have this thing that has to get done <laughs> or I don't get to move forward or I don't get to do anything. So I very quickly try to wrap around, let's get, make sure that the thing that has to get done gets done. And then I start going out for all the other stuff that needs to be, um, you know, achieved or could be achieved uh, inside of that. Bill? Embrace the value of properly analyzed failure. You are going to fail on things you try to do. That is just a given. Everybody does that. And to Alex's point, you cannot make progress unless you're trying to do things you're not competent to do yet. And some of them you will fail at. The, the, the thing is not to ignore it once you do it. It's to look at it and say, why? You know, what happened to me? What did I not do? What did I not understand? What did I not project? So that this thing that I thought had a good chance of working failed miserably. And in that analysis, you can really strengthen your ability to not fall into that trap the next time. Uh, two quick examples. One, Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, uh, she shares a story of just growing up that her dad would always ask her and her brother whenever they were at the dinner table, not what they did well at during the day, but what did they fail at? And what that helps to do is numb and help to desensitize, um, the, taking the sting out of the idea that you did not like failing or you did not hit the mark. And to Bill's point, yes, not hitting the mark, it stings. But what you're able to ask yourself, the the learning, what did I learn? What can I improve? Because that's really where the where your power comes in and just growing from there. Um, two, I watched The Last Dance again, and The Last Dance is on, it was on at ESPN. It's the story of the Chicago Bill, Bulls and ultimately Michael Jordan and all the players. And when you look at someone like a Michael Jordan, as much as he is iconic, but even when he would play, it was the games and the shots that he missed where he would like use that as fuel. So if you can, uh, I'd say just a, a mindset shift is helpful in, in that. So then now you thrive on, oh, it didn't work. That means there's another tool, another resource, or another way that I can meet, uh, meet this goal and hit the mark. Bill? Yeah, there's one other side to that, though. Be careful if you spend too much time on the failure aspects of what you're doing and you focus on that and that and that. Sometimes you can build kind of a myelination almost where it's it's in your mind that, oh, here's how I'm going to fail or here's how I failed last time. I don't want to do that. And you keep you start thinking about the process that led you to failure. I once did a program with a very high level professional golf coach. And he was saying uh, when he was talking to, I think Jack Nicholas or one of the monsters of the game, uh, somebody asked him afterwards about the bad shot he made on five. And he looked really blank because he had managed to never get too excited about things he did wrong. Cause he thought that, that getting that excitement, which is what your body and brain does to remember something is a negative thing if you're looking at negatives. So he would say, I'm going to ignore my failures in the moment when I have to practice it the next time and focus on my successes. But then I, at a time when I'm calm and it's not making me too excited, I'm going to analyze them and take the lessons of maybe something I can do. So just be careful about spending too much time on the failure side. And Alex? Yeah, to, to Bill's point, uh, uh, I, uh, my uncle used to work for Ted Turner. And no matter where Ted Turner was at the time, Someone would show up with a pile, with a stack of a paper, and they would, uh, 
and Ted Turner would read it. You couldn't put more than six lines on the paper. That's what I heard anyway. And, and it basically, he'd read them and just go, and there was a big yes, no. That was it. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Didn't give any explanation. Didn't talk to anyone. Just made a bunch of decisions. Someone said, you make those, you know, you make a lot of those decisions really fast. What happens if you, uh, what happens if you make the wrong decision? And he goes, well, I'll make another one tomorrow. <laughs> you know, like, like he just, you know, and he had no sense of like, he just, he just, we'll just keep, just keep dancing with what's in front of him. Um, and that's the, that's, you know, that's, I think a really good lesson to, to kind of keep in mind. Next question. Hershey Trevetti from Daytona Beach, Florida says, how does time management relate to goals and how can one improve? Alex? I'd say the biggest thing is give things time to do them. Like this is the time I'm going to work on this. Even, not just meetings. I think that the temptation is to only put meetings in your calendar, but time, this is the block of time I'm going to work on this. And then the other thing I would say is be much more conservative than you think you should be. <laughs> and I'm not good at that. So um, I still get too many things. Mostly what happens is people, other people put things in my schedule that I didn't, <laughs> that I, you know, I work in a system where days become busy because other people are adding things to my schedule. But on my own, you know, I tend to put things in. I also tend to put, breaks every couple hours, you know, so there's a, I put them in the schedule. Like, it, you know, it is, I have a break from this point in time and those are spacers. Now, sometimes I might work into that a little bit, but you got to put spacers in there. People have a tendency to pack eight o'clock to 5 PM with th things and you just don't get them done. Like you're not going to get that done. So, um, you know, adding that, adding those things. And sometimes I should listen to my own, <laughs> my own recipe, but, but I know when I, when I'm, when I'm getting a lot of things done, I have only a handful of things I have to get done that day. I have lots of spacers and I have time has been set out for everything that needs to get done, not just the meetings. You're not alone. Just to let you know, you're not alone. No, my EA yeah. literally, she's like, you have no breathing room and yeah. putting those things in. So that yeah. will help. Next question. Eduardo Augustin from Panama asks, is it advised to focus in one goal at a time or shift between goals? And doesn't that feed the lack of focus? Alex? Um, again, I get back to, I have MVPs of things that have to get done. Like there are things that have to get done to pay the bills. There are things that have to get done to, to achieve a project. And I keep the, those are obviously tend to be prioritized. I have lots of other goals that are all in different places and I'm constantly kind of working through a bunch of those, those bits and pieces. Um, and, you know, I'm really benefited constantly by the fact that I'm noodling with something. So like a good example is HDR. I just knew that I wanted to get into HDR. I didn't know how, I didn't have a time frame. but we just started doing experimentation. We got, I got AJA to lend me a piece of hardware. <laughs> I got the cameras. We started passing it through. We got, elemental to give me some stuff to play with on the cloud. And we started uh, managing those processes and we started figuring those things out. And the fact that we were figuring them out attracted attention. And the next thing you know, we were working on it for a company. Next thing we know, we're working on it for a lot of companies. Next thing we're doing a lot of work on it. But it was the fact that we were noodling with that process, you know, um, generated that. But it, it, I didn't have a specific, I had a goal, a, a direction that I was trying to go. Um, but I, but that wasn't my main goal every day. It was just something that we were kind of cooking. And, um, I think that I, I cook a lot of things. I cook a lot of pots, very, I have a lot of slow cookers that are in, on my, on my, uh, <laughs> I have a lot of slow cookers on the, on the table. And then I have the ones that are on the hot pan that I'm working on at that moment. I love that analogy, Bill. 
I think it depends on how you process distraction. A lot of, you know, I know for me, particularly when I'm writing, if I'm writing and I'm really focused and I'm getting things done, but then an idea pops into my head that says, oh, that's the perfect solution for this other concept that I want to write about later. I have learned this process of putting in a row of dashed lines, giving myself maybe 30 seconds or a minute to capture that idea, then putting in another row of dashed lines and immediately going back to what I was doing before. And that is just a process I have trained myself to do. Inspiration needs to be grabbed in the moment, but you cannot get distracted from your overall mission and get the project done. And so you, the, whatever works for you, if that's how your brain works, is the thing you should do. And Jason. The really great goals in my career and personal life have kind of become these constantly in my head kind of uh, obsessions. And I, what I've found is over time, because they are always on the back burner, they tend to harmonize with whatever's coming in at any given time. And as such, um, I, I find that it all ends up becoming related, and that is actually where I draw my best focus. And there it is. We wrapped another excellent show. Thank you, producers, for all of your questions. And I see all the conversation happening in the chat. To our panelists, thank you for sharing your stories, insights, and tips. And to our back-end crew, for without which this would not be possible. And if you want to see what's happening for the rest of the week, head over to officehours.global. Uh, tomorrow, we've got question and answer, and it's somewhat of a show and tell. What did you pick up on Black Friday, Cyber Monday, which is happening today? And on Wednesday, it is our audio Wednesday. So we'll... Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Breaking news. Um, okay. So breaking news. I love uh, this. Yeah, at the end Excellent. of our thing. I could have broken it a little earlier. I just I just saw the email go by. Um, Sound Devices has released the A20 Nexus. This is an 8, 12, and 16-channel true diversity wireless receiver with spectral band technology. Um, I just read that straight from their, their announcement. But um, we hope to have them on either this Wednesday or next Wednesday to talk about this. Um, and so uh, this is a... Um, it's an incredible box. So anyway, so um, uh, just just stay tuned for that. It'll either be this Wednesday or next Wednesday. We'll have them on to, to talk about it. But um, yeah, again, go ahead and check their website out. It's called the, again, the A20 um, Nexus on, on at Sound Devices. And that's Wednesday. It's Audio Wednesday. So it's either going to be this week or next week that we'll have them on. And again, head over to officehours.global. And now we'll head into After Hours and we'll see you next time. Bye. Oh, there's the nexus for the rest of my money. Right. It's not. Yeah, it's 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 more than most it's, of our budgets. It's empty wallet Wednesday. <laughs> you can have your hand up like breaking news. I don't know if you noticed that. We'll set your hand up too. Doodly Good show, Liberty. Thank you all. I like your style. Everything worked out this week too. Yes, thank you, Ken. Bye, everyone. See you later, Jason. <laughs>